Welcome to this episode of Photoactive. This week, we have a special guest, Harold Davis, who is an artist, photographer, and author in that order. Harold, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it is so much my pleasure, guys. Uh, we've invited Harold because he has a new book out about one of my favorite subjects, and that is black and white photography. It's called Creative Black and White. It's from Rocky Nook Books. And you know what? We'll have a 40% discount code later in the show. But I'm not going to tell you now because I really want you to listen to the show and not just listen to two minutes to get the discount code. Um, Harold, this is a new book. This is a new edition of a book that you've written a few years ago. Is that correct? Uh, cor uh, correct on both counts, really. It's a revised, expanded edition, 340 pages as opposed to the original 240 pages of my uh, creative black and white digital techniques and uh, what is it called? Digital photography tips and techniques. Um, so it is a second edition. It's also a chance to take a book that I thought came out very well in the first place and make it even better. Also bring it up to date, add some new techniques. There are various new sections in the book, and most of the photos in the book are new. Hang on a second. Up to date? We're talking about black and white photography. This is all old, stuffy, like who wants black and white anymore when everything's in color, right? Uh, stuffy, <laughs> I resent that. Uh, what's the word? I resent that. Uh, <laughs> well, look, you know, it's a funny thing. When you, when you make a black and white photo today, as you say, the world's in color, and ever since they introduced Kodachrome going back in, into the film era, photography's been uh, notionally in color as well. So going back probably 50 or 60 years, even before the advent of digital, anybody who made a black and white photographic image was intentionally doing something somewhat anachronistic and also intentionally calling attention to themselves. How did you hear that one? Intentionally calling attention to themselves. That's a tongue twister. But, they, but you, you really are. You're saying this is something you should look at. It's special. It's not the world as we know it out there. It's a world that is, that is, that is different and intentionally somewhat artificial because you're seeing shapes and forms and dynamic range and not so much the color. And I could go on and on in this vein, but perhaps somebody you want to jump in here. A few episodes ago, we had an interview with Michael Kenna, and he was talking about how black and white represents more choices for him, more possibilities, because you're not distracted by the color. And I found that very interesting. Um, I've always loved black and white photography. It's what I really prefer. And, and to me, there is more of a palette in black and white sometimes than there is in color. Well, you know, it's interesting you should mention Michael Kenna because certainly of photographers working today, uh, whether in analog or digital, he's one of my uh, the people I admire most as an artist. He does some really great work. Uh, the way I would put it is that when you color is seductive, okay, and and in fact, I'm also a color photographer. I love color. I love working with color. I love manipulating color, but it's seductive. It's what the eye goes to first in a photo. So it can be a very cheap thrill. The thing about black and white is you you're reducing things to its to the form. You really have to have a good composition and you have to understand the underlying shape and meaning of those shapes to create a good black and white image. So I believe that in some ways it's a harder thing to do. Yes, it is. It's not just a question of taking a color photo and converting it to black and white. Um, and, I, and I wanted to start by talking about the first section of your book, The Monochromatic Vision, where you discuss that, that taking a photo in black and white is not the same as taking a photo in color. 
And you have to develop an eye. Now, Jeff and I were talking before the show. Um, we both use mirrorless cameras, so we can set the camera to black and white and see black and white through the viewfinder. And I haven't used a DSLR in a very, very long time. Can you even do that in DSLRs now? Or are you still limited to seeing what's real when you're looking through the viewfinder? Well, here, here's the thing. The DSLR that I use has, has a feature on the back. It's an LCD screen. That, that is called live view. So you can right. set that screen to simulate black and white. The but view not find, the viewfinder. Not the viewfinder per se. Right. The viewfinder is an optical viewfinder, which uh, right. is in a, a somewhat standard old, prism. Yeah. yeah, it's a standard prism. And in a somewhat old-fashioned way, particularly since I do a fair amount of macro work, is really important to me. But if you want to see, pre-visualize what something is going to look like in kind of... Uh, run-of-the-mill mediocre black and white, you can certainly run that up and use live view on the back of your camera. And it's worth noting that in your mirrorless cameras, that's what you're getting too. You're getting run-of-the-mill, fairly generic black and white. You're not taking advantage of the full capability of digital black and white to create a rather extraordinary dynamic range of images to say, hey, I want this area actually to be darker, even though it isn't appearing that way in the uh, image. Well, Jeff and I both use Fujifilm cameras, and as you say, there is a run of the mill black and white, but there are the Fujifilm simulations, notably the Acros, and you have four options. You have a standard option, and you have options as if you were using a red, yellow, or green filter. Those sound very, very cool, just to jump in. I mean, it's something I would... They are, yeah. Yeah. But it's obvious that this isn't going to be your final black and white, but what I find interesting is that when I look through my viewfinder... I'm seeing the world in black and white. I'm stripping out that distraction of color, and I'm able to concentrate much more on forms. Now, obviously, when I'm walking down a road and, and I spot something that looks interesting, it's my monochromatic vision, to use your term, that is spotting a composition. But then when I look through the camera, I'm already reducing it and getting a better view of it. Yeah, that's, that, that sounds great. In fact, it's one of the techniques that I do recommend in my book is to do exactly that, set your camera to black and white. I mean, ultimately, I would rather see people train their eye to look and see the way it's going to be and see the, um, see, see the potentiality in terms of the image manipulation. I mean, going back to the film era, if you look at, say, the famous Ansel Adams' Moonrise over Hernandez image, there's a great comparative shot of what a what a standard print of that thing looked like, which was nothing, a pale, washed out, um, mediocre image, as composed compared to his wonderful, famous image that he spent, you know, five hours per print dodging and burning and gaining a lot of sweat in the darkroom doing. So, to some extent, that's what I do in in, in the digital form. I put a lot of effort into manipulating images. And a revelation for me a while back was that sometimes you want to use the blacks in a black and white image to not show information. We see, my, my, often my standard technique is, is what it can be called monochromatic HDR, in that I shoot a dynamic range somewhere between 5 and 10 images. I get uh, a whole lot of capture information that way. And I can show every last detail of something, even if it's a situation where there are dark shadows and bright brights. I can, I can do the whole uh, uh, dynamic gamut range there. But the thing is that you don't want to a lot of the time. You want to keep details cloaked in the whites or the blacks and let the, let the forms come out that way. So there's a real issue of training one's eye to see these potentialities. And I love that you said potentiality because one of the things about black and white photography to me is it's not only that I can see 
a scene in black and white. Um, as you mentioned, that sort of, you know, flat monochrome that a lot of cameras produce. But, you know, as we've mentioned before when we're talking about editing in black and white, um, you can have different areas that are darker or lighter depending on what uh, color channel you're emphasizing. So you can have some green trees in the background that, you know, in one instance can be bright or you can edit them to be really, really dark. What advice do you have to help train that that inner eye to be able to look at a scene and not just say, okay, here, here's what it's going to be in grayscale, but, but to see the potential of, I know that these trees back there, they're great, but they're just sort of texture. So I want them to be darker later so that I can emphasize the barn on the left or what have you. Um, because, it, because it's not just seeing something in black and white. It, it's knowing what you can do with it later. Okay. Uh, you've brought up a lot of different things here. <laughs> all, all good comments. Uh, the issue of pre-visualization is a general issue in photography, and it goes beyond black and white. And I'll, I'll talk a little more about that in a minute. But the thi one thing is you're so right about that you can basically apply simulated digital filters to areas or use color channels in your image to change the specific way specific kinds of colors in the image look. With your example of a green tree, you can make that darker or lighter. And this is made explicit in a number of places, including the Lightroom black and white filters, the Photoshop black and white adjustments even. By name, they have a high contrast red filter, a high contrast blue filter, a high contrast yellow. And uh, the third party uh, black and white plugins do much the same thing. And they name it this way so that they tell you you can take areas of your photo by color channel and uh, and use the color information to affect the uh, particular part of the image you want to affect. Uh, Pre-visualization, to return to that topic, it's, it's Ansel Adams again, and I'm, I'm beginning to get uh, tired of quoting him, so maybe this will be my last Ansel Adams. It felt that that's really the key uh, discipline in photography is to understand how to use the tools that you have, whether those be a view camera and an old-fashioned darkroom or a uh, mirrorless camera and uh, Lightroom and Photoshop and whatever they are, and understand what you can end up with at the end from what you end up with at the beginning. I don't think there's a... Uh, I, don't think, I don't think there's an easy fix on that. I mean, it's a discipline, and to really do it well takes years, honestly. Uh, I do, I do uh, think that you can go out there and explicitly try to make your vision better. Like anything in photography or anything in life, if you want to be a great pianist, well, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? You practice, practice, practice. practice. Yeah. That is one of the keys with photography as well. Another point is that it helps to have a physical manifestation of your image. So when I first started doing digital photography, I thought it was all about posting on social media. Well, that lasted about a week for me. But <laughs> so I encourage people who are really interested in developing their pre-visualization, particularly when it comes to black and white, to make prints. Make a lot of prints because you really see things when you print them that it's just impossible to see online. So the one thing that I always recommend to people is in order to learn how to see good photographs, you have to look at good photographs, look at the photographs of the great photographers. 
um, get books, go to exhibits, look online, but look at what is done um, to learn about composition without rules because this rule of thirds doesn't exist because the way you lay things out in a photo really depends on where you are, what your angle is, what your point of view is. There are so many things. When you see different photographers and how they approach different scenes, you'll start learning. Now, obviously, if you do that, you're going to start copying photographers that you like, and that's a good way to start before you develop your own point of view. The vernacular or, or, or the vocabulary of, of art and photography is, is what other people have done. So it's really important to look at photos and see which ones you like and understand them. I urge people also to look at art generally, not just photography. As you say, the rule of thirds is El Pupu del Toro. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was formulated as a kind of uh, ad, ad hoc way to compose seascapes, basically, where it made sense to have a, a horizon line at a certain point, a third down from the top. It makes sense in a few kinds of landscape compositions, but very little else. Uh, I'm, I'm personally not a whole lot of a rules person anyhow, but, you know, there are, as you start looking at imagery, there are some things you can think about. You can think about the idea that uh, if you had color in the image, the eye would go first to the bright color. Since we're talking about black and white, you can take that the next step and understand that the eye will go first to the areas in a photo that are in focus. So focus is a key compositional tool with black and white. The, and, and in fact, it's interesting because generally when you manipulate people with color, they will know they're being manipulated if they're at all visually sophisticated, but they do not necessarily understand that they're being manipulated with focus when you intentionally make some areas of a fo of black and white image in focus and others not in focus. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I promise I'll give you the discount code for Harold's book. Before the break, I said I was going to give you the discount code, so you've listened enough. You can get 40% off Harold's book. It is called Creative Black and White. It's published by Rocky Nook. We'll have a link in the show notes to the Rocky Nook website, and the discount code is HDavis40, H-D-A-V-I-S-4-0. In the first part, we talked about concepts, and let's talk about the actual realization of photos. And, and as you, you explained in your book, you, know, you shoot your file, you do raw if possible, and then you get into the digital darkroom, you get into the computer, and this is where in most cases, most of the work is done. It's pretty hard to get a really good straight out of camera black and white photo. It can be done in certain situations, but you probably don't want to habituate yourself to that. You want to use the tools that you have. Before we get to that, I do have one question about when you're going out shooting. How often are you out there looking at a scene and thinking, I'm going to do this in black and white? Or are you out just looking at whatever you're shooting and then you're making the determination later oh this would be good in black and white versus i'm going to go out and just shoot some things specifically in black and white today for for me first of all the going out is a little misleading because a fair amount of what i do is in studio um going in going, going out that's going fine in, going out <laughs> and 
yeah, you know, sometimes I do say, okay, today is a black and white day, and in particular, I'm going to do uh, photographs of weeds, like on the cover of my book, and this is a subject that lends itself to black and white, and I intend to do black and white for it. And other days, um, you know, if I'm walking along a pilgrimage trail in the mountains of Japan, well, I'm going to do whatever uh, wh whatever inspiration strikes. And sometimes you'll pr you'll have color panoramics of mountains, and sometimes you'll have black and whites of temple gardens. You try to do the medium to suit the subject, though. And get, getting back to something else that was said here about the ability to capture in camera, uh, you know, Photoshop is no excuse for being a sloppy photographer. And the more I can get it right in the camera, the better. The less work for me, uh, and it's just better. If you can do it in the camera, you save yourself time, you, you more likely have pre-visualized what it is. Now, that said, you know, that happens to me, what, 5 or 10% of the time. But I do try to be as good a photographer in the camera as I can be and to understand the way my camera works, to understand the uh, parts of an exposure, what's going to happen. And if I can get a capture that is basically right there and, and ready to go, oh, I am so happy. So on the software side, you go through a lot of different apps. You talk about Photoshop and Lightroom. You talk about Silver Effects Pro and ON1 Perfect BNW, et cetera, et cetera. There is a plethora of apps to convert photos to black and white. Now, I personally do most of my editing in Apple Photos. I'm really not interested in spending a lot of time with layers and masks and all that in Photoshop. And I find that some of the tools there allow me a great deal of latitude. And I use external editors as well. And recently, Pixelmator Pro, um, which I mentioned, I think, in the last episode, is now an Apple Photos extension. So you can just bounce over to you know a full... Uh, featured program. I think for most people who are just starting out in black and white, they might start with preset filters, which is a lazy way, but it can give you an idea of what to do. Um, for, for me, there are two techniques. The one technique is using the color channels, as, as you both mentioned earlier, you make your greens darker, your blues lighter, etc. But I also like just desaturating my images totally and just working with shadows and highlights and contrast and things like that. Um, now, again, much of your book is about all these different techniques, but what would be the easiest way for someone who doesn't really make black and white photos to get into this, to do more than just choosing a filter? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I'm inclined, I'm inclined to answer yes again to all you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with any way anyone likes to do it, and, and that's fine. There's also nothing wrong with preset filters, and a lot of the preset filters have a lot of capabilities in point of fact. I, I run through some of the best high-end black and white software in in my book. My own workflow tends to uh, heavily lean on Photoshop, Adobe Camera Raw, layers in Photoshop, channels in Photoshop, Photoshop black and white adjustment layers, and uh, Silver FX Pro as a plug-in to Photoshop. But there are many other approaches. I'm also, by the way, an iPhone photographer. I like using my iPhone. I tend to use, there's a section on iPhone black and white in the back of my book. I tend to use Snapseed as my go-to black and white converter in it. And that's a workflow that is a lot more like what you described if you're just getting started with it. You take a, you take a photo and you uh, 
run run Snapseed on it and turn it into something black and white using the half dozen or so options they have and doing the dials to set things the way you want. And you can get some really spectacular black and white images that way. And there should be no no shame in doing something that's easy and fast if it works. If it doesn't work, it's, that's another question. It's not question. even a question of easy and fast. In some cases, it could be what a specific person wants, the kind of vision that they want. Absolutely. And and there's black and white again, Michael Kenna, who spends all these time in the dark room and dodging and burning and making these precision prints, Ansel Adams, things like that. There's other people that want a photo that's going to have that vintage look with a stra scratchy texture on it, which I hate, by the way, um, <laughs> or, or a sepia tone that's a little bit too strong or too much vignette. And, and sometimes people want that. Obviously, it's not the same sort of art photography that we're really talking about, but it is something that people do want. One thing I find in apps like Luminar, for example, um, a, a few episodes ago, I'll put a link in the show notes, they, they have a free set of filters you can download, uh, which existed in a previous uh, black and white app that they have, which was called, what was that called, Jeff? Tonality. Yes. And... I find it interesting in an app like that to just go through the filters and see if one of those filters sort of interests me, attracts me. And then once you've applied the filter, you can go to the sliders and you can adjust them. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely do the same thing. I mean, it, even if you uh, take Silver FX or On One or Topaz BMW or whatever it is, often the easiest workflow is to run through their presets, pick one that is close to one's vision, start playing with it, and see what you get. I mean, I will say that people have asked me a lot of the time, how long do you spend in the digital darkroom with your images? And the answer of, for me is that it varies tremendously. That, you know, I did, I did a black and white image yesterday where basically I just opened it up, converted the raw file, uh, and, and that was it. It took me 10 minutes. But uh, more typically, I will spend like uh, 30 or 40 hours on an image. So, and the images that I mostly make my living on that become large prints that are collectibles and that kind of thing, uh, do tend to take a lot of work in the digital darkroom for me. I, I think that the art uh, publishers and dealers I work with, for the most part, wouldn't be interested in the more casual things. So in that 30 and 40 hours, I, I think um, Kirk's and my eyes sort of popped a bit when you said that. <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to say, you know, oh, it's been a, a couple of hours. Um, what sort of things are you doing to an image over that course of time, is that just a process of of, of making and revising and evaluating, or uh, is it like are you dodging burning specific areas? What's what does that entail? You don't have to like step through thirty hours of, of work, but just trying to get a sense of. Of, of what you're doing there. I, I seem to be saying yes around here a lot because <laughs> some of it is dodging and burning specific areas. Some of it is evaluating, saying what direction do you want to go with this thing? But if you consider that a lot of what I do starts with uh, five to 10 files, there's the process of combining those files correctly. There's a process of possibly applying effects to them, adding a border, and I, I do usually want to end up with a fine print, so there's the process of preparing the file for printing. All of these are different stages in, in the, in the uh, image processing. Um, 
the and yes i will regard what i do as the digital version of something like the zone system where i can control the exact uh, uh, modalities of each area and 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 uh, density in the photo so that so that it's all pretty precisely controlled when i'm doing it right this very much goes into the idea of of artistry as we mentioned at the beginning because clearly you you started with some some raw material but for something that you're really going to work on you're doing a lot of work on it because either you have a vision at the outset or you're discovering what the image is going to be as you work does that sound correct yes does, does, yeah yes and i'm um, you know to to take your second thought there uh, sometimes the way I feel about what I'm doing is a little what Michelangelo said about his sculptures from a block of Carrara marble, that here's a block, and as he starts working on it, it's going to tell him what's under there and what he should do, and th that's very much true. On the other hand, you know, if you, take, uh, if you take a raw image and you don't have any idea where you're going to go with it, that's a recipe for some degree of frustration. So what I, I like to think in, in both in the processing aspect of what I do in my work in photography and also actually in the go, when I go out there or go in there and make photos, uh, that I'm on a quest. Okay, there's some kind of adventure, some kind of reason for this whole thing. Now, you don't want to be so rigid that when you take a quest, you don't also, also take side adventures that are given. You know, if there's a dragon pursuing a beautiful damsel over there, you should go and, uh, and say, hey, dragon, do you really want to be doing that? But, you know, or the visual artistic equivalent of that. But, right. you know, uh, yes, both, both, both things come up a lot for me. And I try to stay flexible. I mean, I think the best, uh, the best photographers really are flexible in their mindset about how they approach imagery. They're prepared to both have a plan, a vision to start with, but they're also prepared to improvise. You know, just as with musicians, you have jazz musicians who will improvise all over the place and are great. And you also have uh, people who play the canon of Chopin and Mozart and who are wonderful. You don't want to be stuck in one rut with this. I, I like to say that... Well, there's this cliche, you want to take better photos, stand in front of more interesting things. Yes, there's some truth to that. <laughs> you want to take really better photos, become a more interesting person, which is a lot harder than standing in front of interesting things, because basically anybody more or less can uh, get a plane ticket to Greece and go to Santorin and stand uh, up in the whitewashed buildings and look out at the beautiful crater there. But to make an interesting image, even from a place which is so photographed as that, is a whole order of magnitude more special. Harold, I want to thank you very much. This has been really interesting. Um, it seems that we didn't really talk too much about the actual process of making photos. And, and I, I really like your worldview here about the concept of this being art and, and going much further. I will remind listeners, the book is called Creative Black and White. It's by Rocky Nook Books. There'll be a link in the show notes. And 40% off with the code HDAVIS40, H-D-A-V-I-S-40. Harold, thank you very much again. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you, Harold. Jeff, it's time for our snapshots. What have you got this week? My snapshot, it's going to be something really complicated. It's going to be really in-depth, super expensive. No, actually, it's none of those things. Um, I was recently in Montana, and I was taking some pictures there, and I realized, as this happens all the time, my lens was slightly smudged. 
What do you do about this? Well, my snapshot today is lens wipes. I know, completely boring. However, it's totally, totally useful. Um, I have a box of 200 Zeiss lens wipes. They also work great for your uh, eyeglasses. They're just tiny little one-use packets. Um, I feel a little bad that they create quite a lot of waste in general because they're just these little tiny packets. But for $16, you can get a box of 200 And the great thing about it is I just stuff them everywhere. So it doesn't matter if I have my everyday bag, if I have a specific camera bag in you know different pockets. I know that I have one nearby. Uh, totally utilitarian and yet something as a photographer you will use every time and even more importantly get into the habit of using to make sure that your lens is clear. Ooh, that was exciting. Kirk, how about you? Well, mine is actually pretty boring as well, but I made an interesting discovery. Um, I think I've mentioned many times that I like to take macro photos, shoot flowers. And in fact, just after we finished the interview with Harold, we were talking offline about uh, flower photography because he's written a book about flower photography uh, that I have. And what I've been doing recently is my partner grows lots of flowers and really interesting. And I've gotten interested in Ikebana, which is a Japanese art of flower arrangement. Mm. And you can do some very interesting, simple things with just a few elements. So I have been making these flower arrangements and I have been photographing them partly to document what I've been doing, but also to make nice photographs of flowers. And a few days ago, I decided to shoot a little bit differently. Instead of having the flowers on a shelf against a wall, I took a piece of black cloth and I hung it on my desk over my iMac and the speaker that's to the left of my desk. Uh, now, I'm at about a 45-degree angle to a window that faces east. So in the afternoon, I get this wonderful diffused light that comes in. We'll put the photo in the show notes. What is really interesting about this is that you can take photos of flowers or other objects, um, still lifes. And if you have this black background, and if the objects themselves are fairly bright, you can basically make the background almost disappear. If you look at the photo, you can see some reflections at the bottom. So this is um, on the desk, and then the the and then the cloth goes up behind it. I shot this with uh, an exposure correction of minus 2.67. So I had to darken it a great deal because the camera is trying to make everything that famous 18% gray, and it's trying to get the black background to be 18% gray. I shot a number of photos um, with different exposure compensations to find the right one. Uh, once I did that, I really pushed the shadows as hard as I could without affecting the flowers, and that got rid of everything on the black. I mean, this wasn't ironed or anything. There were little reflections. It's not even a, a velvet, a matte cloth. It's got a bit of a sheen to it. But it's that simple. You take some black cloth near a window, and you can shoot objects, flowers, anything like that. You get this wonderful light. Uh, now, I did this on a tripod. This was a one-third of a second exposure. Um, I do these as long exposures. I don't try to push the ISO. Um, I, I do it at the lowest ISO possible. Um, but it's really not that complicated to do this. And, and I, this is enlightening for me. Uh, enlightening? See that? Because <laughs> now I'll be able to explore this with, with flowers and perhaps other objects against this background that stand out. I'm looking forward to other backgrounds. So basically, this is just a piece of cloth that cost me three pounds on Amazon, two meters of black cloth. And you can get all different colors and find a place where you can drape it more or less straight, and you've got a good background. 
And something that's especially important here, you can do this on any day of the year as long as you have some light. So, Well, as long as it's not night. Well, that, this is true. <laughs> what I'm looking at here is you can accomplish this with flashes and strobes. But the important thing is if it's raining outside and you decide you don't want to go shooting, you can absolutely do all sorts of things. And again, this is in Kirk's office. This isn't like a big studio that he has set up. This is just something that anybody can do anytime. And if I can do it, anyone can do it. Exactly. And we, you know, we, we tend to forget that, oh, well, I can't go to an exotic location. As, as Harold was saying, well, you don't have to. It can be, you know, literally in a corner of your room. It doesn't even have to take up a large portion of your room. Yeah, as long as you have the light and bear in mind that um, you don't need a lot of light. You need your camera on a tripod. You need a long exposure. You need to set the exposure compensation low enough um, so the black is going to be black. Mm -hmm. But even if it's a three-second exposure, you just don't touch the camera. And here's a tip and something I had never really realized. When I had my X-Pro2, I had a little wired remote, and that remote doesn't work with my new X-T3. But you know what you do? You just set the timer for two seconds. You get everything lined up on the tripod. You press the timer, and then you don't even have to worry about the camera shake. My my office has carpet, so uh, the, the, even on my tripod, there is going to be a little movement when I press the shutter. So just use the timer. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the end. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast. 